Thank you for listening to this recording of Family Bible Church's Sunday morning message. We pray that God will use this word to bless and encourage you. Well, I'm excited to hear that Chuck was excited to, um, to, to hear what I'm going to exposit on. I'm excited to find out what I'm going to exposit on, too. No, just joking. Um, it has been a, a fun week of studying. Um, again, Zechariah clearly is a book of prophecy as a whole. Um, and it's considered one of the minor prophets. But of what I was kind of chuckling to myself, for such a minor prophet, he sure has a major message. You know, I don't know if you've gotten that even from the first three weeks. If you had to sum up just what we've learned from the first three weeks or so of Zechariah, what, what, would you, what would you say was the big picture that, that we've kind of seen? Don't, don't use Yahweh's zeal for Zion as your, uh, as your clue there, okay? That's not, what I'm, where I'm not where I'm going with this one. But just in those first three weeks, I, I don't, maybe, yours may be different than mine, and it, it could be. What would you say was the greatest impact? So don't look back over. Just If you've been here, you're, you're kinda, this is kind of testing just to find out whether you really got anything out of it. And Maybe I shouldn't even ask this question because it will make me feel bad. But... But what would you say was the, you're getting out of this thing so far? What, what's, what's big? Go ahead, Gerald. Well, I mean, the fact that God said he was going to come and dwell with the people. Good. Okay. All the illusions to Christ. All the illusions to Christ. Those two, I think, are one and the same. Yeah. And so, you, how can you get through even the first three chapters without realizing that Jesus is... Yahweh. You can't do it. I mean, Yahweh declares the Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Remember, that's his name, God's name. It's Yahweh. Yahweh declares that he himself is going to come and he's going to dwell on the earth. The one who exists, Yahweh, I am that I am. The creator of the heavens and the earth. We exist because he exists. He's going to come and he's going to dwell amongst his people. How cool is that? We live 2,000 years or so-ish after Jesus came to the earth. We have hindsight. Hindsight's 2020. Could you imagine being somebody who was living in this day that Zechariah is declaring this and hearing this? Yahweh's going to come. And you have the testimony. If you, if you would remember back, you have the testimony from the law and from the other prophets, but from the law that Yahweh, in fact, did come and he did manifest himself over and over again on the earth. First to Abraham, remember on the plains of Mamre, but he also manifested himself as the angel of Yahweh on numerous occasions. We talked about that a little bit last week, okay? And so here is Zechariah being used by Yahweh to declare that, that Yahweh himself is going to come and he is actually going to dwell on the earth amongst his people. And he says it numerous times. And you shall know, this is the exciting part, Yahweh says as well, and you shall know that Yahweh Sabaoth has sent me. And we see it again in this chapter. So again, within it, not only is Jesus Yahweh, and not only is he going to come and dwell on the earth, but that within the Godhead, there is three parts. So we went back to Isaiah 48, remember? Where Yahweh declares, and Yahweh Adonai and his Ruach have sent me. It's three parts. You have Yahweh Adonai, Yahweh Sabaoth, Yahweh and Yahweh Ruach. 
And so even from the Old Testament, the tri, the tri, uh, triunity, the Trinitarian position, however you want to describe it, because it boggles my brain, okay? You know, we were talking, Marsha and I were kind of talking about that a little bit because um, she taught on it in Sunday school this morning. And so we were, before I left North Greenville yesterday, I had responded to one of her texts and we kind of talked about it. And um, it, the, trini- the Trinity of God is just, just a mind-boggling thing. He's one, one Yahweh. And we'll again see this in Zechariah 14. He's going to come back to this. He's one. And yet he has revealed himself in three persons. An amazing thing. So this book, for such a minor prophet, has such a major impact. And we're going to see that again today with today's passage in, in Zechariah chapter 4. Because again, this passage within here is, has such a lot of allusions. Now, where are we at in the, the outline-wise? Okay, we're, we're within, there's five words of Yahweh to Zechariah. We're in the second word, so it's a much longer portion, and we're not doing it all in one week. It would, we'd be here for hours, which I don't mind, but you guys, anyways. <laughs> anyways, and so, but we have looked then at what I call Act 1, for the lack of a better word, portion 1, first section, whatever you want to call that, okay? Um, where the zeal of Yahweh is really being d- described, and that's going to come out again down here in these other words. Um, but then we're, we're moving in now into this visions of Yahweh, okay? And you can see that there's still four more, and we're going to do all four of those next week in one lump sum, okay? So bring a snack, okay? <laughs> Anyways, um, no, we're not going to do it next week. Next week we got Dan and Irvin coming, okay? And so it'll be in two weeks, okay? And, and so, um, but yeah, we're, they're, they're not as um, detailed as this one. The one we're going to deal with today is really detailed, really exciting um, and so that's why I was excited that Chuck was excited, because to me, this is an exciting chapter. And, and what's going on behind here, could I be wrong with my interpretation? Start right off the bat. Yeah, of course I can. But I'm pretty 99.9% sure I'm right. No, anyways, I'm joking. Okay, but as we go through, and again, I'm going to present why I believe it is what it is, okay? And what I want to challenge you then as we go through this, okay, to be Berean Christians, right? The Bereans were more noble than all the others because they... Search the scriptures daily to find out the things that Paul were saying were true. Okay, so there are a whole lot of opinions out there based upon what the lampstand is, what the olive trees are, and yada yada yada. And applications to not by not by power, not by might, but by my spirit, says the Lord. There's so much that's out there that is false, that is wrong. Okay, and I I just want to challenge you on that one. Okay, that you got to really analyze where people are coming from and what they're trying to prove. Okay, and so we want to start where. When, when we go to interpret, to interpret the Word of God. The Word of God. That's exactly right. Because the Word of God, kids, the Word of God is 100% true. It's 100% true. It always is true. And so when I go, to, I don't want to read in my opinions. That's called eisegesis. I want to take out from it that's exegesis. Okay? And that's what we want to do. We want to we want to bring out from it, and so we want to compare spiritual things with spiritual things, because God does have a lot of information about this passage elsewhere in his word. We just have to be able to, to take the time to be students. And so knowing it's going to take us a little bit more time on this passage, I've saved it for one message, okay? So we're going to talk about these golden lampstands, or this golden lampstand, singular, and olive trees, okay, that are there. And so the one thing I want to, just before we get into it, okay, is... I want you to kind of see this drawing, which we're going to have here. Because I feel like both of these drawings do very good. There's a lot of drawings out there. 
um, on, on the web to try to describe this picture, and a lot of them are wrong. Okay? It's kind of fun. You've got to think about it. It's like when we did David and Goliath, you know, um, a, lot of, a lot of them have David falling over backwards. David, I'm sorry, Goliath. David, Goliath. Goliath falling over backwards. Goliath didn't fall over backwards. We're told clearly in God's word that Goliath fell on his face. Okay? It's a big deal because he was pushed from behind. I think it was God's hand pushing him. Okay? I mean, so if it was the impact of that rock coming from this way, he would have fell backwards. And so that's what everybody's thinking about. But the Bible is clear to say that Goliath actually fell on his face. Okay? So a little detail, but it's important. So when you, when you look at things, you've got to remember details. God's word's got detail for reasons. So there are details in this, what, what we're being given here in Zechariah 4, and we're given the details for a reason. Okay? So I want, what I want you to see as we begin to read, we're going to be reading a lot of passages, okay? When we read them, I want you to think of what is being stated here. As Chuck has already read, okay, that you've got this lampstand, okay? And above the lampstand that has four lamps on it, right? Or, I'm sorry, seven, seven, seven lamps on it, okay? You've got one bowl with seven pipes feeding each of the lamps. Are you tracking with me? Okay, I'm not interpreting right now. I just want you to think about it. Now, in this passage as well, as a whole, there is the vision to Zechariah. But within the vision to Zechariah, there's a word that is rubbable. So he starts talking about the lampstand, and then it kind of goes, Zechariah asks a question, right? And it's kind of like, it takes this aside almost, where all of a sudden it's like, so I got this word for Zerubbabel. Tell Zerubbabel this, right? And then it goes back to the vision, because now we're going to talk about the the trees. But note that the trees and the lantern in the the description are all intricately related. They go together. Do you get it? Okay. So we're going to talk about this as we go. First, we want to talk about the vision to Zechariah, and we're going to start with the golden lampstand. Okay. And so what's very important here is as we're going to see this, okay, is that this is Levitical. Now, on your sermon note sheet, you got a lot of verses, and we are going to read most of those today. Okay. So I want to challenge you to, to start... Uh, being able to move quickly, I cheated. Okay, I have them all here. Okay, so so I'm going to read so that I can move forward. But I want to challenge you to go go and find them with me if you can. Okay, if you can go that fast. So regarding the lampstand, I'm going to start in Exodus 25, verse 31 to 37. Okay, where Moses, God speaks through Moses to um, telling Moses to tell the people this: You shall make a lampstand of pure gold. Sounds like our lampstand, maybe. You shall make a lampstand of pure gold. The lampstand shall be made of hammered work. Its base, its stem, its cups, its calyxes, and its flowers shall be of one piece. And there shall be six branches going out from the sides, three branches of the lampstand out on one side, and three branches of the lampstand going out on the other side. Three cups made like almond blossoms, each with a calyx and a flower, on one branch, three cups made like almond blossoms with a calyx and a flower on the other branch. So for the six branches going out from the lampstand, and on the lampstand itself, there shall be four cups made like almond blossoms with their calyxes and flowers. And a calyx of one piece with, uh, with it under each pair of the six branches going out from the lampstand. Their calyxes and their branches shall be of one piece with it, the whole of it a single piece of hammered work of pure gold. Now, it sounds so far like there's only six what? Six lamps. But there's not. There was also one on the the stand itself. Okay? And we see that here in verse 37. You shall make what? 
seven lamps for it. You shall make seven lamps for it, and the lamps shall be set up as to give light on the space in front of it. We'll come back to that in just a little bit, okay? So it's going to have seven lamps, okay? And so this goes back all the way to the, the tabernacle of meeting, okay? And so when they were first instructed to make the stuff for the temple or the tabernacle, the, the, the lampstand that they were instructed to make was a seven-lamped lampstand. Are you tracking with me? Of pure gold. All right? So jump over to 1 Kings chapter 7. 1 Kings 7. Because now they're getting ready to make the temple. David has set aside everything to make the temple. Solomon's going to be the one who makes the temple, right? So Solomon's going to make the temple. And so um, it's interesting to see then what Solomon does. Because I think we already have the what? Design. Okay? But in 1 Kings chapter 7, beginning verse 48, we read, Thus Solomon had all the furnishings made for the house of Yahweh, the altar of gold, the table of gold, on which was the showbread, the lampstands of pure gold, five on one side and five on the left, in front of the inner sanctuary, with the flowers and the, the lamps and the wick trimmers of gold. How many lamps? Ten. When you th- well, yeah, but there was only ten. There was ten. And so when you think of um, Hanukkah, when you think of a menorah, how many lamps do you picture on it? Ten. That's the, that's the modern Jewish thing. It's just ten on it. So a minion is ten people. And so ten became this number for them. And so, according to Levitical law, on the lampstand there should be seven. Solomonic temple there was ten. A little bit something wrong there, isn't it? Now, it's kind of interesting, so that when God comes and God's speaking to Zechariah, and he gives Zechariah this vision, the vision isn't a lampstand or menorah with ten. It's seven. God goes back to the original design. Do you get it? God has a plan. Do you realize that God wants us to worship him in spirit and in truth? God has a a way that he wants to be worshipped. But we tend to do what? What's our way? Say again? Why do we want to adjust the plan? Well, why do we want our way? Because we think it's right. We think it's better. Yeah. So we have this temple now, right? That was just a small little tabernacle. Now I'm making a big temple. And clearly if I make a big temple, I need what? More light. And the only reason that lampstand was there was just to shed light, which we're going to share in a moment. But that's thinking that God didn't really have a what? A plan and a purpose for what he did what he did. That's when you think that the little things don't matter. The little things do matter. When he despised the the small things. Kind of get what's going on there in Zechariah. The small things matter. God put in his word what he put in his word because... It matters. Like that little detail I shared from Psalms. That I mean, I've read over that psalm a lot of times, and it never hit me before. But David says, God, I want you to scatter them for the sake of my people so they don't forget you. That's pretty cool. It's just a small little thing. You can read right past it because the rest of the, the psalm, you can read over that and just get, a, get something totally different out of it. 
but he's got details in here. So, so the first thing we know about this lampstand then, okay, the identification of it is that it's Levitical, not Solomonic, okay? Secondly, what we saw there as well then in, in Exodus 25, okay, is this to shed light. We see it again in Numbers 4, turn with me to Numbers 4, where it's stated even more clearly to us, okay? Numbers 4, beginning of verse 4, this is the service of the sons of Kohath in the tabernacle of meeting relating to the most holy things. When the camp prepares to journey, Aaron and his sons shall come, and they shall take down the covering veil and the cover of the ark of the testimony with it. Then they shall put on it a covering of badger skins and spread that over, uh, over that a cloth entirely of blue. They shall insert, then they shall insert its poles. Verse seven, on the table of the showbread they shall spread a blue cloth and put on it the dishes, the pans, the bowls, the pitchers of purpuring, and the showbread shall be on it. They shall spread over them with a scarlet cloth and cover the same with a covering of badger skins, and they shall insert its poles. Note the one had a blue cloth and the other one has a scarlet cloth, right? I'm not getting into that, but just, again, details. Verse 9. And they shall take a blue cloth and cover the what? The lampstand of the light. The lampstand of the light. Okay? Do you note it? Okay? It's definitive. And they shall cover with it the lampstand of the light. The lampstand has a what? A purpose. The lampstand's purpose wasn't just so that the priest could see. That was a derivative of it. But it was symbolic of something. It was the lampstand of the light. We'll come back to that, okay? Lampstand of light. With its lamps, its wick trimmers, its trays, and all of its oil vessels, which they then service it, okay? Note also in all its oil vessels. Again, we potentially refer back to that as well. Numbers 8, so go a couple chapters up there. Numbers 8, verse 1 to 3. And Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and say to him, When you arrange the lamps, and seven lamps shall... Blah, 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 blah. When you arrange the lamps, the seven lamps shall give light in front of the lampstand. And Aaron did so, and he arranged the lamps to face toward the front of the lampstand as the Lord commanded Moses. Okay? So it's designed again to give light, okay? And it's positioned... Um, in a specific way, we'll come back to the positioning as well, okay? So, so the purpose of the lampstand? To shed light, okay? To shed light from, if you would, the light is where I'm going to go with this, okay? The location of the lampstand. What did we see as we just read through this, okay? We saw that it's where? It's in front of the Holy of Holies, okay? And so, go back to Exodus chapter 26, okay? We were at... 25, now Exodus 26, and this is the placement of it. And you shall put the mercy seat upon the ark of the testimony in the most holy. You shall set the table outside the veil and the lampstand across from the table on the side of the tabernacle toward the south. And you shall put the table on the north side. This is a little aside. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this one. But again, this was an aha moment for me too. It's not part of the message, but this is kind of fun because I love details. God put details here for a reason. Okay? So, where was the lampstand? The south side. Okay? South side of what? Elijah. No. Micah. South side of what, Micah? Not the tabernacle. You're, you're, you're thinking right. South side of what? Somebody else? The holy place. The ark. Okay, so I'm in the Holy of Holies right now. Okay, this is, this is the Ark of the Covenant, and I'm in there. And I'm coming out, I'm coming out, 
Think about it. Where is the lampstand? Is it to my left or to my right? The word used, this is fun. Toward the south, the word is teman. Literally, it is as being on the right hand of a person facing the east. When I come out, where is it? It's on my right. It's on my right. It's on my right hand. Which means that is what? The south. That's the east. Get it? So the temple, think about it. This is a big deal. As I want you to think this because it's news. News right now, okay? They're trying to determine because they want to rebuild the temple, and they're trying to justify putting the temple on the southern portion of the temple mount. Can they do it? No. Why? Because of this verse. Where, where was the temple facing? To the east. Directly across from the eastern gate. That's the one that the Muslims all bricked up and everything. Why? Because Messiah is going to come, and we'll see this continued in Zechariah, but he's going to come down and he's going to enter into that eastern gate and he's going to go right into the temple. Do you get it? The temple was right in the middle of the temple mount. Right where the Dome of the Rock is right now. Do you get it? It's a big deal. Politically, this is a big deal. Okay? There's a whole lot. I've shared this past. They're already, they've got everything already made for the temple. All they need is the temple. Is the space. It's happening in our day. Prophecies breaking forth in our day. It's really an amazing thing. I want you to think about this. Okay? So, anyways. So... We have it, though, and it's set then outside, right outside the, um, the Holy of Holies, right? And so what else did we see? That the lights then are pointed where? Which way are the lamps pointed? Say again? Well, no, they're pointed east, okay? But, but the point is they're pointing away from the Holy of Holies. So they could do what? Shine the light out. Where is the light being shown from? Think about this. From where? From the Holy of Holies. This is all symbolism. Why did God have a seven, I'm not going to get into the seven right now, a seven lamp lampstand sitting in front of the Holy of Holies, making sure that he specifically stated to us that I want the light to be pointing away. It wasn't so that they had enough light. It could have been pointing anywhere. If he really wanted light shining everywhere, right? He could have had, make sure we got one of them pointing north, one of them pointing south, one of them pointing. And so in other words, you make sure that you have light where? Everywhere. What's the point? It's going to be pointing, shining the light from the Holy of Holies outward. Think that through as, you, as we go on, okay? Again, this is going to all play together. Okay, so we got the location. It's in front of the Holy Holies. It's facing away from the Holy Holies. Now we're going to jump to the, the olive trees. Okay, so we're going to skip the word Zerubbabel in the middle there. We're going to come back to it. Okay, but we're going to talk about what about these oil, these, these oil trees, these, these oil trees, these olive trees. Okay, so it's translated improperly in the New King James as well as in the New American Standard in, in the ESV. They all say that these are the anointed ones. It doesn't say that in the Hebrew. Literally in the Hebrew, it says, 
Beni HaYitzar. Beni Yitzar. The sons of oil. Sons of oil. It's literally what it doesn't even talk about two. It's the sons of oil. These are the sons of oil. Now, what's kind of fun about it, and I think I have on your sermon note sheet, because I'm not going to go into all these verses, okay? These are for you to research. Just check this out. I have Yitzhar on there, and I have Shimon on there. Am I right? Do you have that on your sermon note sheets? Okay. Yitzhar is our word, okay? What it refers to is new oil, like the new wine. It's always paired with new wine. It's the first fruits. It's the fresh oil. It's not the Shimon, which is... The, 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 like the thickened pressed oil, which was used for anointings. So if I was going to anoint George, I would have the Shemen, not the Yitzar. <coughs> Are you tracking with me? Okay, it's a different oil. Okay, and I would anoint him with it. And it was also the oil. Think about it, This is kind of fun. It was also the oil that was used in the lamps. If you check this out. Okay. So why, again, this is a detail thing. Why would God use this word for fresh oil, new oil, to burn in the lampstand and not the word shaman, which he used all through the Old Testament? Are you tracking with me? Jesus said you can't what? You've got to put new wine into new wineskins. You can't put new wine into old wineskins. There was going to be a new covenant that was going to come, a new thing that was going to occur. It was going to be fresh. It was going to be new. Now, this is kind of exciting because where I'm going to go with this, okay? Because you're going to have to blend all this happening together here. So, we want to get into, first of all, then, who are these? Okay? So, the interpretation. Go with me to Zechariah chapter 7. Okay? Zechariah. We're going to start there in our own book. Um, Zechariah, chapter 7, beginning of verse 9. Thus says Yahweh Sabaoth, Execute true justice, show mercy and compassion, everyone to his brother. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the alien or the poor. Let none of you plan evil in his heart against his brother. But they refused to heed, shrugged their shoulders, and stopped up their ears so they could not hear. Yes, they made their hearts like flint, Refusing to hear the law in the words which Yahweh Sabaoth had sent by his spirit through the former prophets. Thus great wrath came from Yahweh Sabaoth. The people refused to hear what? The word from what? The word of Yahweh via what? The law and the prophets that the Holy Spirit was speaking to the people through the law and the prophets. Do you hear it? Okay. Track with me on this one. Go to Matthew. This is New Testament. We're going to go to the words of Jesus himself. Matthew 5. Do not think that I came to destroy what? The law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to what? Fulfill. Matthew chapter 7, verse 12. Jesus again declaring, Therefore, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. 
the idea is that th- this is what the law and the prophets have been what? Saying and declaring. Drop to chapter 11, Matthew 11, beginning of verse 12. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. It's also stated in Luke 16, 16. Go over to Matthew 22. You know this passage very well. You can probably quote it to me, beginning in verse 37. Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Luke 24. Go over to Luke 24. It's the last chapter of Luke. Okay? Jesus is, is speaking. Luke 24, verse 44. Then he said to them, These are the words which I spake to you while I was still with you, that all the things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets in the Psalms concerning me. Go a couple, couple pages, two pages over to John, chapter 1, verse 45. Philip found Nathanael, and he said to Nathanael, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. What do you get that Jesus is talking about and then even others uh, talked about? That the reality is that everything that needed to be known at that moment was written where? In the law and in the prophets. And that the Holy Spirit was going to take that and lead them into all truth. What did the early believers have? Did they have the writings of Paul? No. What did they have? The law and the prophets. When, when, when Paul, well, let's go there. Acts 24, Acts 24, verse 14. When Paul goes to, to proclaim Jesus, what does he use? The law and the prophets. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, so I worship the God of my fathers, believing all things which are written in the law and the prophets. Acts 28, 23. So when they had appointed him, that is Paul, a day, that is for his judgment, many came to, or not for his judgment, this is in Rome. When they appointed him a day, this is for the, the leaders of the Jews to come, many came to him at his lodging, to whom he explained and solemnly testified of the kingdom of God, persuading them concerning Jesus, both from the law of Moses and the prophets, from morning until evening. But now the righteousness of God, I'm sorry, Romans three twenty one. I'll just read it real quick. But now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed to by the law and the prophets. Okay? So, you kind of get a little bit of an idea of where I'm going with this? Okay? That, that God gave his testimony through two things, the law and the prophets. Now, it gets personified for us as well, and Jesus helps us to personify this in Matthew 17, where we had the Mount of Transfiguration. When Jesus goes up to the Mount of Transfiguration, what happens there? Moses and Elijah meet him. Moses, why those two? Because Moses represents the law. Elijah represents the prophets. The law and the prophets come together in Jesus. And they bear testimony of Jesus. This is why I'm excited when I, I, I wouldn't to the Mormons and the Jehovah's Witnesses from, from Isaiah. 
I want to, and from Genesis, from the law and the prophets, because the law and the prophets bear witness of who Jesus is and that Yahweh is going to come in the flesh. It's not a New Testament thing. They want you to know the New Testament. But the fact is, even without the New Testament, everything I believe still holds true. The New Testament just bears witness to what the Old Testament already declared. Isn't it sad that in most churches you don't hear any teaching from the Old Testament? And yet Paul said, I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God, and yet the New Testament wasn't even written yet. What was he t- declaring to them? The law and the prophets. The law and the prophets. And the law and the prophets are, are represented as Moses and Elijah. In Revelation chapter 11, verse 1 to 3, interestingly, Revelation chapter 11, what do we see? What do we see in the beginning of Revelation chapter 11? Well, two witnesses, because you know I'm going there. But well, what, do you, what do we see first? What's the first thing we see before we see the two witnesses? Say again, Debbie. Okay, measuring rod for what? To measure the temple. The temple. The temple, the temple, the temple. The temple is there. What is the temple? The residence of? Of God, if you would. Okay? Okay? So the temple is going to be rebuilt. It's going to be rebuilt. That's revelation. We're looking forward to this. It's still coming. I think in my lifetime, may not be in my lifetime. Okay? But it's, it's going to happen. The temple is going to be rebuilt. And when the temple is rebuilt, there are going to be what? Two witnesses there. And if you look at what these two witnesses are able to do with the turning water into blood and, and sending fire, they are miracles which both Moses and... Elijah performed. Why would it be these two guys? And they're not named. So this is conjecture. This is conjecture. Okay? But why would it probably be Moses and Elijah who were there at the temple? Because they represent the law and the prophets. Because that's to the Jews, not to the Gentiles. Make sense? You've got to understand. It's from the perspective of the Jews. And so this is Israel. And it's the law and the prophets. The law and the prophets always bear witness. The law and the prophets, that's what they will respect. They don't want to hear from your New Testament, but you witness to a Jew from the law and the prophets. Do you get it? Because it declares about who Messiah is, Mashiach is, okay? And so that's who, where it comes from. So kind of a fun thing, okay? So application here, though, is what really is fun for me. This is what's exciting to me, is the application of this. Because I now, again, I'm New Testament believer, right? I look hindsight back. Do you see, think about what's going on here, okay? You've got the law and the prophets. This isn't just Moses and Elijah, but rather it's the law and the prophets. And so what's happening here? Remember that one cup, that one bull. When you read about the the Levitical one, every lamp had its own bull. And they would pour oil into every one of the lamp's bulls. But for this illustration, there's one big bull that's going to feed into the other bulls. It's not going to be Aaron feeding the bulls, but rather the the bulls for oil are going to be fed by the trees themselves. That, that That the life oil is going to come right from the trees. And what what was the oil pumping into the lamp for? It was to shine light. So we needed to have the oil continually pumping in in order to continue to what? Shine the light. If it runs out of oil, it runs out of? Light. In Philippians chapter 2, Paul says that, he says, Do all things without murmuring and disputing, that you may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom you shine as 
lights in the world. How? Holding forth the word of life. Did you get it? Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5 that you are supposed to be like cities that are set upon a hill whose light cannot be hid. And why do you get, light a lampstand and then stick it under a, a, a bed? You don't do that. Where do you put it? You put it on, a, on, on the table okay, in order for it to shed light to everybody who's in the room. I submit to you, I see this as the word of God. The Law and the Prophets. It sums up the entirety of the Word of God. That it's God's Word being poured into the vessel of God. That's you and me. For the purpose of shining forth His glory that people might see. To point people to the Holy of Holies. Where the, 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 um, the veil has been what? Rent by the blood of Jesus. And so... Veil's gone. You see the light at the end of the tunnel, if you would. And you head toward the, the light. Where does the light lead you? To God. Do you get it? And now it's not just to God and you can't get in. <laughs> this is fun. You get to God and the door is wide open through the blood of Jesus. But the only way that you're going to shine brightly is being filled with the Word of God. Your Word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy Word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Do you get it? I can continue on. Hiding God's Word in your heart, being able to share it. I loved your testimony, David, talking about the Holy Spirit, what the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit leads and guides us into all truth. And we're told in that same portion that we don't have to worry about what we're going to say in that day because the Holy Spirit will give us utterance. Where is he going to draw from? From that cup. That's exactly what you've hidden in your heart. The, all the oil that's been poured into your heart is going to shine forth from your light. And that as the world gets darker and darker, my little lamp should what? Shine brighter and brighter. But it only happens when I'm pouring the oil into my heart. Do you get it? How cold is this? So I ask you, how much do you read, even from the Law and the Prophets? I'm not talking about, I mean, now we have three, right? We've got almost like three trees. And it's kind of fun because they're olive trees, because olive trees represent who? Israel, okay? So this is a, a statement to Israel. But for us, we get grafted in as wild branches into the natural tree. How cool is that? And so you can almost take this, and some do take this as Israel and the church. I don't think it is. I don't think that's who it is. Okay? So, because it's to Israel. But you can almost then take it as an application to us. But there's really only one. If you're going to do that, I say that doesn't right, because there's really, ultimately, if you're going to look from that perspective, there's only one tree, if you're looking at it from that perspective, and we're grafted into the one tree. Does that make sense? Okay? So you've got to consider the symbolism where it's at. So, kind of fun stuff. We're going to move on to the word of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel, okay? First of all, I want to introduce the man, okay? Because you're kind of like, who is Zerubbabel? I mean, what a name. Could you imagine? That's the kid that you didn't like so much, you know? Zerubbabel, okay? It's a very common name in Israel. It's probably a common name in Israel back then, yeah. <laughs> Anyways, Zerubbabel. Anyways, 
So who is Zerubbabel? Okay. Well, first we see him in in Haggai. Haggai chapter one. Okay. It says in the second year of King Darius, or Darius, but I call it Darius. In the sixth year, on the first day of the month, the word of Yahweh came by Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, and to Joshua the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, saying, "Thus speaks Yahweh." Sabaoth saying, this people, the time has not come. So, who do we know the Zerubbabel is? He's the son of Shealtiel, and he is the governor of, of Judah. Okay? This is, remember, the people are coming back out of exile. Okay? And so the people are coming back. We see that's who it is. Okay? And so you can look at these passages in, in, um, in Haggai, and then these passages in Ezra. Okay? And all along the way, what you're going to see is you're going to see continually that um, so Rubble is referred to, and he is the, the governor of Judah. But what you're also going to see, and this is important slightly, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this other than just to mention this, but what you're also going to see as you come through this, that Zerubbabel and, and um, Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, are, go hand in hand, that, that they were co-workers. They were co-workers. Now, I say that because if you read commentaries, there are some commentaries that want to make the mountain, which we're getting ready to talk about, they want to make the mountain into Joshua. It makes no sense. Because Joshua was not standing against the rubble. They were working together. And so to, to turn around and make Joshua the, the, the mountain doesn't hold to anything within the, the context of Scripture. Does that make sense? But that's people, again, remember when I talk about different theologies. If you believe a certain thing, if you believe that Israel is going to be no longer, and this is really has to be talking about the church and that kind of stuff, you start, it starts changing how you want to interpret things. Okay? So you read things in that aren't really there. Okay? So be careful of that. Let it say what it says. So what we know, what we know about Zerubbabel is that he was the governor of Judah, okay, based upon all these passages. He's the governor, and that he and Joshua are working hand in hand. Now, the second thing is understanding the plan that Zerubbabel speaks to him. And he says to him a very interesting thing. He says to, 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 to Zechariah, or to Zechariah, through Zechariah to Zerubbabel, verse 6, This is the word of Yahweh to Zerubbabel. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says Yahweh Sabaoth. I've heard this thing quoted a lot of times out of context. It's okay. There are applications. But I, I, I think that we again, quote it for whatever we want to quote it for, and we kind of bring it to whatever we want, and we can't do that, okay? So, what is it literally, what's the context, what is it literally talking about? Well, God is calling Zerubbabel, and you see this from the rest of the context, God is calling Zerubbabel to do what he's called him to do. Build the temple. That was the function, why he was sent from Babylon, along with um, Joshua, along with Ezra, over into Judah to do. They had one task, and that task was... Build the temple. Build the temple, okay? You can go back and check me out on this. But we have this word, not by might, it's the word kail, okay? Kail um, could be translated might, but that's really not its intent. This is the, um, when you talk about the, the men of honor, the men of uh, power, the men of, uh, men of renown, not, yeah, renown, um, valor. valor, men of valor, okay? Valor, yeah, this is the word. Literally, it's men of influence. It is translated wealth at times. It is translated power at times. Literally, it means to twirl, okay? And so you're, you're affecting things when you're twirling. You think about, okay? So as, as a kid's twirling around, 
right? You tell them to what? Stop. Why? What's so care of the kids twirling around? Why do you tell them to stop? He's going to knock the vase off. He's going to do this. It's like a whirlwind. He says, ah, stop. He's influencing things in his surroundings that you don't want to be influenced that way. Does that make sense? Okay. Influence is what this idea is here. Okay. And then power, again, there are different words that can be used. This one literally is for like a force, a power. Okay. And so, but both have this secular, manly um, focus. And so you see my, my paraphrase here, okay? Zerubbabel, God's work does not get accomplished using worldly methods of influence and power, but by God's Spirit. I had the opportunity to share that with um, someone, well, it was probably about two months ago, three months ago, and, uh, and they just kind of looked that, you know, it was about the property and such, and that how God gave us this property, but we wanted the back property, but that wasn't God's plan. That wasn't his will. And I'm good with that. Even though I kind of struggle with that from my fleshly side, I, we prayed about it, and God answered. And God said, no, I'm going to let it be a, a, a subdivision. And, um, and this individual had said, well, you probably could have offered more or whatever. Okay? And I said, no. If God's in it, then it'll, it'll happen. Do you remember... I, how many times I heard from people after the fact when we got this property. How did you guys get that property? I didn't even see it get listed. This should be, along with that, a bigger subdivision. I mean, I, developers are who, who asked me about it were, were, were dumbfounded. This thing went through that whole process for a year and a half, two years. That we knew about it. And we were working with it, and we weren't even going to make the offer except for the real estate agent said, wait, 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 and then just kind of put it out there. And it just kind of happened. Why? Because God was in it. Do you get it? It's not by influence. It's not by torquing things around. You know, it's really amazing to me, and I'm going to go a little aside here, how many Calvinists who really don't live like Calvinists, they're the ones who believe in the big S sovereignty of God, but they want to manipulate things. Why do you do that? If God is sovereign and everything happens because it happens, then why are you trying to manipulate anything? It doesn't make any sense to me. I'm a practical Calvinist from that perspective. I, I, I don't, I'm not a uh, theological Calvinist, but, but I believe God is sovereign, and I'm going I'm to rely upon him. Why? Because if God's in it, God's work is done God's way. He doesn't need me to influence and manipulate people. He doesn't need me to torque things. If if I've got to try to manipulate things for it to happen, it probably wasn't God who was doing it. In the end, God didn't do it. Bob did it. That's exactly right, Gerald. Think about that. If you've got to force things to happen, it's probably not God. I mean, I'd, I'd really pray about it. Find out, is this really what God wants? Or are you just forcing your will? And say, oh, praise God, his will was this. His will was done. Well, was it? Or was he just said, well, fine, if that's what you're going to do, do it. And find the consequences. Okay? So, understanding the player, clearing the mountain. I love the reproval. <laughs> oh, mountain. Who are you? Who are you, great mountain? But that begs the question, what? Well, who's the mountain? I mean, God says through, you know, that who are you, oh, great mountain, right? And so, 
what is the great mountain that's there? Who are you? And so there are people who put out there that it's Babylon. That makes no sense at all. Because they weren't even in Babylon anymore. Where were they coming from? Well, they went from... Right, but where are they coming back from? From Babylon, but from Persia. Persia already conquered Babylon. Make sense? So there's no sense for that Zerubbabel is going to be conquering, right? And the whole context of this is for Zerubbabel is what? It has nothing to do with being a military exploit, does it? What's the whole context of this passage? Building a temple. Building a temple. So the context has to be something to do with uh, the temple. I want to submit to you my, my thought on this, okay? Again, it's just my thought. The mountain is probably twofold. Physically, it's Mount Moriah. It's literally a mountain. But it is the mountain of God, which is now full of rubble. Could you imagine coming back and looking at the place that you're supposed to build this temple? What's there? The Dome of the Rock. <laughs> well, now, yes. But back in Zerubbabel's day, there was a bunch of rubble. What rubble? From the first temple. Oh, yeah, everything. I mean, what trash. In over 70 years, I mean, probably animals have made, you know, their, their homes there. And, I mean, it probably wasn't a pleasant-looking sight. And Zerubbabel's looking at this thing thinking what? It's a lot of work. It's a lot of work. David, in your testimony this morning, you were going to go put up a simple blind. Why didn't you call me? Anyways, <laughs> I wasn't in town anyway. But still, that's what my first thought was. David, why didn't you call me? Anyways, I could come over and help you. But, but you struggle with a simple blind. I'm, I'm picking on you. I'm, I'm, I'm picking. Now, you guys understand. I'm picking, okay? Because that's, that's what you said. Okay? That's, so I'm just using words. A simple, a simple blind. I mean, we're not talking about a temple. We're talking about a blind. And you felt what? Overwhelmed a little bit? Yes. Yes. Okay. Five hours in. Five, five hours in and we're struggling with a blind. Could you imagine then Zerubbabel? God called him to build a temple. Yes, God, I'm all for that. I'm going to build a temple. Oh, God, what are you doing? You needed to call a contractor, God. I'm not. Governor, I could be? Contractor? Oh, we got problems. Do you get it? I mean, we want to call the what? The right man for the job. God clearly what? Called the wrong man. Because who else was going to be supposed to be doing the work? A priest. You get it? You got the governor and the priest, and they're supposed to what? Clear the rubble and build a temple. But God gives the rubble some encouragement. Who are you, great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you shall be cleared. Now, I want to submit that I think it's twofold, because metaphorically, I think it's also talking about the people. You can go back and check this on it, but for time, I'm not going to go there. In Ezra chapter 4, we're told that as they began to do the work, opposition came to them, and, and that they began to write letters back to Darius. And, and so they stopped the work. They caved into the opposition. And so he's got to encourage Zerubbabel, saying, Zerubbabel, continue the work. I've called you to do it. Before you, this mountain is going to be gone. And so I ask you, 
with this removal of the mountain, do you believe that mountains can become plains? That's what God says. Isn't that what Jesus said? He said, you can say to if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, what? Be moved and cast into the sea, and it will be done for you. Do you believe it? That's what God's kind of saying to Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel, it looks like a mountain. It looks like a disorganized mountain. But guess what? Before you, this mountain, it's going to lay flat. What looks like it's all disorganized, picture it swept off in a temple being built. And you're going to build it. The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this temple. The hands of Zerubbabel shall finish it. How cool is that? In the end, look what's saying. Who says this? Then you will know that the Lord of hosts sent me to you. Is that Zechariah saying this? Who said that? Who said it? Look at the passage. Yahweh says it. Just Yahweh saw me out there. Yahweh declares, because this is the word of Yahweh, right? To Zerubbabel from through Zechariah. Right? And Yahweh declares, then you will know that Yahweh Sabaoth has sent me to you. Again, another triunity comment being made here. How cold is this? Application. Yahweh is being sent by Yahweh Sabaoth. Yahweh declares, then you will know that Yahweh Sabaoth has sent me to you. Prophetically, now, this is initially to Zerubbabel, but we understand prophetically, ultimately, where's the fulfillment of this going to be? The, the final temple. There's going to come a point where the temple's going to be rebuilt. Somebody's going to have to do the work. There will be a modern-day Zerubbabel who will look at that task and say, what? I can't do it. But Yahweh's going to come, he's going to dwell there, and you're going to know that Yahweh Sabiath has sent me to you. But here's, here's the application for me and you. Think about this. God has probably given you a task. I don't know, but I venture he has. If you are his child, he has given you a task. The question is, do you feel like you can do it? I venture to say, probably somewhere along the line, God has asked you to do something that was well beyond what you thought you could do. The answer, question is, did you do it? Did you even attempt it? Or did you say, no, that couldn't have come from God? I want to challenge you, it came from God. And that if you are willing to try to clear the mountain, if you're willing to take the mountain, I think back to um, Caleb, who said what? I want that mountain. Everybody thinks it can't be done. The Anakim are on it. All the giants are there. No one thinks it can be cleared. I want that mountain. God promised me I could have that mountain. I'm in my 70s now, but I'm just as strong as I was back then. I want the mountain. Do you want the mountain? Or do you want just a, an easy life? Or do you want God to use you to do great things? The only way it's going to happen is if you trust God to do it. And you do the great thing. As long as God is what? Leading you to do it. If it's his will. And in the end, in the end, what comes out of it? Then you will know that Yahweh Sabaoth has sent me to you. God receives the glory. Because I couldn't do this on my own. I look back to all that home improvement stuff. I remember, I mean, how many times I said, I can't do that. I mean, I remember the first time someone asked me to do a ceramic shower. I can't do that. 
I can't do that. Do you know when we closed up the business a year and a half ago, two years ago, what our, what our, most, our best jobs were? <laughs> Ceramic towel showers. I remember telling this guy, I can't do that. I don't do that. But then God said to me again, I thought you said that you'd do anything I put in front of you. I thought you believed that you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. Okay, God, I can. I'll do that. And so I did it, and I did it, and I did it. I'm not patting myself on the back. I'm just telling you, it's amazing to me how many things that you can do if you trust God who puts it in front of you. How many temples, if you would, need to be built? Oh, Zerubbabel. It's not by influence. It's not by power. But it's by the Spirit of God that things happen. You just have to what? Trust and obey. you just got to believe it's heaven. So, in the end, are you by faith performing the task that God has set forth before you? Are you trusting in your prowess and ability or in the Spirit of God? Are you shining forth the Word of God, living it out in your life? And finally, is there a need then to change the way you think and ultimately then change the way you act? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your goodness to us. I thank you for your love and your mercy. Lord, help us to, to shine forth your word into this world. Lord, we think sometimes that our little voice will accomplish nothing, but it will accomplish whatever you want it to accomplish. Your word does not come back void. Lord, I pray that as Steve and I go out on Wednesdays and we knock on doors, that you would use these two feeble vessels, Lord, to proclaim your truth. Lord, that you would bring others out as well, and that you would use feeble people to proclaim your truth in whatever feeble way we can, because it's not us but you. It's not our influence, it's not our power, it's not our, not our presentation, but it's your Holy Spirit which does the work. Lord, help us as an assembly to be seeking your face. Lord, that we would be filling ourselves with your word, that we would, we would be filled and we would be burning, shining brightly before this world, Lord, that people would be drawn to you. Lord, I thank you for these passages in your word which you have given to us, this great, great encouragement. Lord, help us to, to consume you that we might serve you. In Christ's name, amen.